the problems around breast implants, the questions, the controversies and issues, this is not new stuff. It's been around for a while. Um, it started at first in the 80s and 90s when the first FDA moratorium happened for implants, which is patients started to report some problems related to implants. And the FDA put a total lockdown. They said, until we get this figured out, no more breast implants get put in. So even though this is coming up again now in a much more profound way, uh, there's a lot more patient-driven media and support around it as opposed to like big news outlets and things like that. This has been a problem for a long time. This episode's going to blow your mind. I have world-renowned plastic surgeon John Konevsky. He talks about breast augmentation. And not just about the procedure, but really what we're finding out in science, that breast implants could be making you sick, being the root cause of many issues and diseases that people are suffering from. He also talks about how to remove the breast implants properly. There's a way to do it, and with his expertise, he talks about the safest way to remove the breast implants. And not only that, he talks about what he's practicing now, and that's the safe alternative to breast augmentation. In this knowledge bomb, how many of you are trying to get pregnant? And how many of you are putting so much burden on yourself? How many women are going, oh, it's my fault that I can't get pregnant? Did you know that there's a huge, huge, huge factor? And it's how healthy is the male? Today, I'm talking about what are the factors that are causing male infertility? It's not always the woman. So we need to think about as men, what do we need to do if we're planning to have a child? We have just as much of a role. But I'm going to talk to you in depth about one of the most important pieces, something that's not really being talked about. I'm bringing to light in this knowledge bomb for fertility. You know, so many of us are putting the burden of infertility on the female, right? And we see this often. We see it in movies. You know, I was just watching the new American horror story. And so much of this woman, she went through in vitro fertilization because they couldn't get pregnant. Uh, but it was very much so on her, the, the lead actress. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, we well, need to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about fertility. But did you know that in almost half of the infertile couples, the male factor is the sole or secondary cause of infertility? Now, fellas, it goes without saying, if you're planning to have a kid, you have to get yourself healthy. In about a year or two years minimum of really getting your health together before you have a kid, it's going to be really important. Because think about it. The sperm is adapting to the environment. So the sperm is adapting to the environment that you are in. These are epigenetic changes. And it's really, really important for us to bring to light that, okay, no, I'm responsible for giving the signal to my sperm that the world is safe, that there's an abundance of food, that it's not a stressful world. That's your responsibility as a man before you have a child. So in this episode, I'm going to cover all of the really important things that are affecting that epigenetic signal to your sperm. Multiple studies out there show that excessive alcohol consumption causes an imbalance in your sperm, your sperm quality, concentration. So absolutely, if you're drinking alcohol, I would consider full cessation of alcohol or reducing it significantly, especially if you plan on having a kid. We know the same about tobacco. Of course, it goes without saying that one's an obvious one. The same goes for marijuana smoking. You may want to reduce the amount of weed you're smoking because the number and quality of sperm can go down as well. Other factors, cocaine use, of course, 
medications, testosterone replacement therapy, long-term anabolic steroids. If you're on cancer medication, like chemotherapy, some of them can affect your sperm. Certain antifungals and antibiotics you may have not known can affect your sperm. So if you're especially on this chronically and trying to have kids, it might be one of the sole reasons why you can't have kids. Some ulcer medications can also impair your sperm production and decrease overall male fertility. Really something like hormone imbalances are what we need to start looking at. If you have any issues in your brain, your hypothalamus, pituitary, it's going to affect the communication between your brain and your testicles to produce hormones that create sperm. So yeah, naturally we have to make sure that we're optimizing our brain health. Alterations in these hormones can be affected by many, many things, including just stress. We want to think about exposure to radiation and x-rays. Yes, your phone actually plays a role. If you plan on having kids, put your phone on airplane mode. Yes, there's data out there that shows that the ambient radiation from your cell phone in your pocket near your testes, fellas, is going to affect the quality and the number of your sperm. So make sure you're swiping on your phone, putting it on airplane mode if you put it in your pocket. Other than that, make sure you keep your phone away from you, away from your body, especially your testes. You know, skincare isn't just about looking good, right? A lot of us want to look good, but it's not just about looking good. It's about nurturing your skin and being well-balanced from the inside out. And, you know, this world is flooded with a bunch of harsh chemicals that are really insulting our skin, our barrier. And you want something truly effective that is safe. Alitura is one of the best in the game. If you never heard of Alitura, you just think of, you might've seen some uh, black bottles with gold writing on it. It's one of the best. And they're always at health events and people are loving them and their quality. Alitura Naturals has crafted a serum that is not only safe, but also incredibly effective. Listen, a lot of you ask me where I get my glow from. This is a huge part of the equation. Their gold serum isn't just another skincare product. It's a testament to the power of natural healing and a commitment to holistic health. It uses organic ingredients like jojoba, olive, rosehip oils, and the gold serum is made organically with plant-derived vitamin A, not synthetic stuff, not that nasty stuff that you're getting in a lot of these over-the-counter products. GHKCU and marine collagen to revitalize your skin. Alitura Naturals has been using the best ingredients in their products for years. They've been pioneering the path for what truly transformed skin should be. So if you're ready to take control of your skin health and experience the pinnacle of natural beauty, I highly recommend checking out Alituria Naturals. For a limited time, you, the Heal Thyself listener, will enjoy the exclusive discount, just the Heal Thyself discount, only for you. That's 20% off of this gold serum. Go to alitura.com and use the code DRG for 20% off. That's A-L-I-T-U-R-A.com and get that 20% discount. It's amazing stuff. I use it every night before bed and I'm telling you, I'm on fire with my skin in a good way. Check it out. It's been a long time since I promoted a coffee because there's not that many good coffee brands. We got one of the best ones now on Heal Thyself. Are you ready to elevate your coffee game? And experience to prove that it's not only delicious, but it's also health focused. Let me introduce you to Purity Coffee. You heard me review them in one of my first ever coffee reviews as one of the best, and then my second ever one as one of the best. And it's one of the best still. It's an ultimate choice for coffee lovers who, who prioritize taste as well as well being. I'm gonna tell you what makes Purity Coffee stand out from the crowd. Every step in their process is rooted in health focused principles backed by solid, scientific, research based, rigorous testing. They use the finest specialty-grade organic Arabica beans and then move on to small batch roasting, ensuring that each cup meets the highest standards of quality. But what really sets Purity Coffee 
apart from all the other coffee brands is their dedication is my favorite is their dedication to purity and safety their beans undergo third-party testing to ensure they're free of pesticides toxins and harmful mycotoxins those pesky substances that can wreak havoc on your health causing issues like liver and kidney damage digestive problems brain fog and fatigue purity coffee also has some of the highest antioxidant capacity and this is important because we have to understand coffee is actually really good for us when we're getting quality coffee and the reason it's good for us and ensures so many benefits, especially heart health, is because of its antioxidant capacity. Purity has one of the highest antioxidants that you're going to find in coffee, giving you a powerful dose of healthy boosting compounds with every sip. Purity coffee is grown on regenerative organic farms that prioritize soil health, animal welfare, and community well-being. They have certifications by USDA Organic, Rainforest Alliance, and Smithsonian Bird Friendly. You can also trust Purity Coffee is not only good for you, but also good for the planet. They have a range of roasts from their light medium roast with sweet fruity notes and their dark roast with rich bold taste. So to try out one of my favorite coffees in existence and one that I recommend to everyone still to this day, I've been doing it for years, is Purity Coffee. Go to puritycoffee.com and use the code DRG for 30% off of your first purchase. That is P-U-R-I-T-Y-C-O-F-F-E-E dot com and use the code drg for 30 percent off of your order other factors heavy metal exposures we want to make sure we're testing for heavy metals making sure that we don't have a over accumulation of them throughout life a lot of us do when it comes to heavy metals there's different types of heavy metal tests you can do out there blood isn't going to show you that much it's just urine one without any provocation medication something to pull the heavy metals out is going to be pretty much useless i don't like the hair test they don't really show that much either so really what you want to do is take a provoked urine test where you take a medication that sort of pushes these heavy metals out of the body and chelates and shows you in that moment how much you're holding in your tissues. Because heavy metals are in the tissue. They're not just floating around the blood. You'd be dead if all of them were. We know that industrial chemicals like pesticides, yes, they can affect your sperm, organic solvents, toluene, xylene, or herbicides, yes. Emotional stress, I mentioned stress before, a big factor that puts a stress on your nervous system, which ultimately is gonna put a stress on your immune system, which is ultimately making you more susceptible to different infections and making you more susceptible to the damage caused by industrial chemicals, heavy metals, radiation, all the other stuff. It's actually a cascaded effect throughout. And making sure you're at a good weight. Before you have children, you wanna make sure you're actually in a healthy hormonal balance of weight. You're reducing that influence of estrogen coming from the adipose cells in the fat and increasing your muscle, making sure you have that anti-inflammatory effect in the body. We know that certain infections can affect your sperm quality. Ones that affect or cause inflammation in the epididymis of the reproductive system or the testes, very important, and different STDs. Now, I brushed over so many of these important factors that are causing infertility issues in couples. And you may have heard about a lot of these. But in my opinion and the scientific opinion, really what we're seeing now is this is being one of the main causes of infertility. And we're not speaking enough about it, and we have to, and it's time. When you look at the effect of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, things that are affecting your hormones, and how they affect your testosterone, and how they affect sperm quality, at this point, it goes without question. EDCs, or endocrine disrupting chemicals are really driving male infertility and fertility issues across the board in females too. So if you're trying to have a kid and you can't, look no further than EDCs. These endocrine disrupting chemicals or hormone disrupting chemicals have an impact on human reproduction and development. 
Exposure to these endocrine disrupting chemicals in humans can occur via absorption through the skin, inhalation in the air, or ingestion of contaminated food or water. However, human exposure to EDCs occurs most frequently when contaminated food is consumed. So what are they? You may have heard about them. Bisphosphonol A, phthalates, and parabens are really the big three that are causing so much worry as to what is causing male infertility and female. But we also then look at things like heavy metals and different pesticides that have these chemicals in it. Now, for males, EDCs cause impaired reproductive function, male infertility, altered fetal development, cancers of the testicle, prostate, and yes, breast cancer for men and women. And what happens is your hormones are affected. EDCs can interfere with normal functions of endogenous hormones by changing hormone levels, by blocking or boosting hormone production, or modifying hormone transport across the body, thereby overall disrupting your hormonal control. So one of the best papers out there is a 2021 meta-analysis out of Switzerland that really reviewed all the data on these chemicals and found some interesting associations with semen quality. And it was a super telling review. So fellas, if you're planning on having a kid and having trouble, you need to get your urinary BPA, phthalates, and parabens tested. That's number one before having a kid. Higher levels of urinary BPA and phthalates showed a correlation of impaired semen quality and increased DNA damage in the semen. Bisphosphonols are a significant class of those endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And the most well-known and possibly most extensively researched of all is BPA. And it's widely used in almost all the plastics that we use, inner lining of cans, receipts, dental sealants, and it has multiple forms and analogs like BPF, BPS, BPAF. The most studied one, BPA, shows that it causes abnormal cell proliferation. And these chemicals have a direct effect on your sperm, changing its motility, its viability, all because it's causing oxidative stress to the DNA. Now, here's how the other two chemicals affect your sperm. Considering phthalates and their metabolites, all studies have found a positive association between urinary levels of phthalates and at least one semen parameter indicative of low semen quality. Some studies also reveal sperm DNA damage all the way to male infertility overall. Phthalates in themselves are a class very similar to BPA. They basically are used as plasticizers for PVC, making them flexible, durable, and just long-lasting. Numerous individuals who are exposed to these chemicals due to the widespread plastic uses that we are of our daily life, basically, in addition to thousands of employees who are working with it, has been shown to have the disruptive and harmful effect of these chemicals in their urine. In general, urban men were found to have much higher levels of phthalates than rural men. Additionally, phthalates were found in semen and statistically higher amounts in infertile men than fertile males. And one concerning study, we saw that males who had high levels of phthalates had 4.3 milliliters smaller testicular volume and 0.87 milliliters lower semen volumes than men who were less exposed, which is a really big problem because it's not only emasculating us in many ways, but it's also reducing our fertility. Big, big issue, especially when you're trying to have a baby. All of these changes are effectively deteriorating male reproductive function. And lastly, parabens. A lot of people ask me about these. They're not necessarily coming from plastic products. You're finding these things in like toothpaste, shampoos. Can this chemical hiding in some toothpaste and some shampoos be causing male infertility? Well, the answer is yes. It's called parabens. And it's found in cosmetic and medicinal products. And not just toothpaste and shampoos. Also shower gels, moisturizers, lubricants, makeup, 
topical and oral pharmaceuticals, and even food preservatives. So it makes it really challenging to avoid them. But multiple in vitro and in vivo in human studies have found that parabens have a weak estrogenic and anti-androgenic actions, meaning that it's going to increase the estrogen in the body and reduce testosterone in the body, which can be detrimental for sperm health. It was found that a percentage of sperm with abnormal morphology or just physical features and high DNA damage was significantly increased with urinary paraben concentrations, while also seeing that the motility or the movement of the sperm was decreased while the testosterone levels decrease as well. Now, how are parabens affecting our sperm? The same way BPA and phthalates are, by these reactive oxygen species that are essentially generated and affecting and destroying amino acids, proteins, carbohydrates, lipids, but most importantly, DNA. While reactive oxygen species aren't necessarily a bad thing, when we're exposed to too much, it's causing increased amount of inflammation and are causing epigenetically induced mutations in the sperm DNA. Okay, so with all that said, what do we need to do? If you plan on getting pregnant, we have to at least a year really start working on our health, right? Men, women, the couple really needs to work on the health. So you hook up with a functional doctor or you hook up with a naturopathic doctor. Uh, naturopathic doctor, go to naturopathic.org. You can find one in your area. Functional doctor, you can go to ifm.org, find one in your area. You have to connect to a doctor who can integratively and holistically treat you. What that means is most likely they're going to do nutrient testing to make sure that your body is nutrient dense, not nutrient deficient, and you can handle having a baby and your sperm is healthy. They're probably going to give you a urinary test to check out your oxidative stress load. Uh, how your sperm looks. You can get your sperm tested. You can see how viable, the motility, the concentration, the morphology. You want to make sure your sperm is strong. You are probably going to get a urinary test that is going to show what chemicals or endocrine disrupting chemicals are in your system. Very important. And you're going to start getting a big picture about the things that you need to change. You're probably going to get a full intake with your weight, to fat ratio, make sure that you're actually at a good space. They'll ask you lifestyle stuff to optimize everything. Again, this show isn't just for men, it's for everyone. If you're planning to have a baby, you want to make sure you're doing the right steps early on. You're optimizing the body because you want to give the body the signal that the world is safe, right? The epigenetic signal that the world is safe, which you're communicating to your sperm and your eggs right now. Is the world safe? Yes or no? And that's changing. So really, really connecting to what's my level of stress? How can I reduce that level of stress? Am I repressing emotions? This is why it's such a big role for everything, right? Because it's causing so much downstream stress while getting the nutrient tested, while getting your gut tested, while getting rid of the cigarette smoking, getting rid of the alcohol, getting off the medications that you don't need to be taking, really making that change in your life because day to day, week to week, you have a new signal about the world into your system. You want to make sure when there's conception that the signals to the world is that the world is safe, especially coming from the men early on. For mom, we got to make sure that mom is healthy through the whole pregnancy, the world is safe through the pregnancy, that there's an abundance of food, that the stress and the arguments are down, that we're actually creating the physiological mirroring that the outside world is being experienced by the inner world early on because what's happening 
is in vitro, the baby is responding to those messages that are being sent through the blood, from the nervous system to the blood, into the placenta, and getting information always, always, always is the world safe. So fellas, it is our responsibility to optimize our sperm to the healthiest sperm possible ever. Conception happens, and then it's our responsibility to show up for the women and create the space and hold the space for them to feel taken care of, safe, and, and held through this pregnancy to give that signal to the baby, yes, I'm coming into a world where it's safe, where it's beautiful, where it's abundant, and where there's love. That, I mean, for me, that, those, those are the keys to, to having a baby. But really, to getting pregnant, we want to make sure that we're optimizing both men and women. It's not just women. So follow these rules, fellas, and you're going to find your sperm is going to be better than ever. All right, everyone, check this out. I never, not once on this show did I ever have a plastic surgeon. Yes, I got a plastic surgeon on the show. And we're not just going to talk about plastic surgery, why people get it, especially around cosmetics. We're talking about breast implants today. We're going to go deeper into breast implants. You ever hear of breast implant illness? I did a show about this three years ago, but now we got an expert on here. We're going to talk about explants. We're going to talk about where the state of breast augmentation is right now, where it's going, and all of the really important stuff about sovereignty and connecting back to the body, especially from the feminine aspect, how we connect and align back to really loving and expressing ourselves in our bodies without fear. Look, we're going to go all over it. You ain't ever going to find a surgeon like this. And guess what? I got him on the show. Dr. K, thank you for coming on, my man. Thank you for having me. Listen, I hope that's the intro that, that you deserve. I couldn't get... I, I, oh, you nailed it. I want you to introduce me all the time. Okay, okay. That's, that's okay. I appreciate Let, that. Next thank time you. you're at a very serious buttoned-up conference... Yeah, I'm going to call come, you I'm going to come with a, as like, a hype uh, man. Dr. G, please. Uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my man, look, I, I want to go right to it. It's so incredible how breast implants have exploded. I remember when I was a kid and like maybe Pamela Anderson on Baywatch had breast implants and that was it. It's become, I've seen teenagers, like 16-year-old girls with them now, uh, maybe even younger. Has a popularity exploded and is there an implication? Is, are all breast implants unhealthy or can some women really be okay with them? Mm, the problems around breast implants, the questions, the controversies and issues, this is not new stuff. It's been around for a while. Um, it started at first in the 80s and 90s when the first FDA moratorium happened for implants, which is patients started to report some problems related to implants. And the FDA put a total lockdown. They said, until we get this figured out, no more breast implants get put in. So even though this is coming up again now in a much more profound way, uh, there's a lot more patient-driven media and support around it as opposed to like big news outlets and things like that. This has been a problem for a long time. Women, I think, have been gaslit by the medical industry, specifically as it relates to breast implants for a long time. And like any controversy, there's many sides to it. And um, that's why I'm so grateful for, for your platform and the way you discuss things because you, you're bringing in all the different angles. And it's something I've been trying to think about. Um, science and evidence-based stuff is super important to talk about, um, but as is all the controversy and, and different biases. So um, breast implants have been a big issue for a long time. The popularity of implants has stayed pretty consistent over the past two decades. When implants were first created in you know, the 50s, 60s, Dow and Corning was the first company that ever came up with them. They, it just started to be this like phenomenon of the trends in beauty. And the popularity just continued to increase 
until this past year, for the first time, breast implants are no longer the number one procedure. It's actually liposuction. Um, but that to say, the fact that they're still number two most popular means hundreds of thousands of women are getting breast implants a year. And even if it's just 1% of those women, which is actually a lot higher, the complications associated with them are significant. And I don't think the medical industry has done enough to warn and educate patients about some of the complications with them. Um, the trend has certainly evolved in the plastic surgery world in terms of, I've in, in my generation of training and now being a uh, practicing surgeon, I've watched the dialogue go from, oh man, these patients are crazy. They don't, you know, their symptoms don't make any sense. There's no way it's their implants. I've watched that dialogue happen a lot of times and it's become more uh, transition to like, no, there's there's something happening here. We just don't know what it is, but let's do research and try and figure out. And now there's full on academic research committees dedicated to trying to figure out what the hell is going on with implants and why are they such a problem. Um, for me personally, as a surgeon, it, while I was in training, it was really simple. I was like, I have a lot of patients come in and complaining about their implants. The symptoms are at times vague, at times very specific, but there is a signal in the noise, meaning there's there was enough patients coming and I was like, this is weird, something's, something's up. So I just personally, it's been six years ago now, I haven't placed a breast implant. I just decided until I get clarity around why and this is happening, I just don't think it's a safe procedure. And to, and to answer the, the question that you asked is like, are, are all implants bad? Are some of them safe? The truth is around 30% of patients will develop or it's been reported to be as high as 30% will develop some sort of reaction or can have a complication related to the implant, which is, I think that's that's very high, whether it's BII, breast implant illness, and we can we can talk about all the symptoms. And it, it's I think it's dope that you talked about it three years ago. Not many people were, and you clearly had your finger on the pulse. Um, but, but back to that 30%, that means you know, as many as 70% of patients out there are getting implants and not having any issues. Yeah. So for me personally as a surgeon, the 30% was too high to say like, it's almost a coin flip. It's almost 50% of the time. It's closer to 50 than it is to zero to say like, I don't know if you're going to, I'm going to do this procedure for you and you're going to have a complication with the implant. Mm. So I personally decided to step away. Um, but, but all that to say is not everybody who gets an implant is going to develop a complication. And it seems to be, according to the literature, um, the evidence that people who have a predisposition to autoimmune illness, whether it's dermatitis, allergies, atope, like eczema, anyone who has a, a family history or already some autoimmune conditions is that much more likely to develop uh, breast implant illness. And it has to do with a bit of the science, uh, presumably behind why silicone acts as an adjuvant and will trigger an immune response. Mm -hmm. So if you're already kind of on that edge of maybe having an immune reaction, getting a breast implant might push you over the threshold. Mm. And isn't silicone supposed to be non-reactive to the immune system? Yeah, and um, that's that's been the working theory. And um, a lot of medical devices use silicone and yeah. a lot of like food-grade products use silicone. Right. But the truth is anything that gets in the body creates an immune reaction if it's not uh, if the body doesn't recognize it as self. So um, I, I know you talked a bit about this before with the capsule. Even though silicone is technically inert, like the body's not breaking it down and creating inflammation around it, it's still actually reacting to it and creating inflammation around it. Um, they, that's what the capsule is. The, 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 the white blood cells in the body recognize this silicone material and they form this really thick fibrous bag around it called the capsule. Mm -hmm. So it's technically not supposed to be reactive, 
But what we've seen repeatedly over the years is that the silicone can either migrate out of the shell or just immediately create this this wow. uh, inflammatory reaction. And, and shout out to the body for a moment. Like, look at the intelligence of that. Let's just siphon off this material with a capsule. What an incredible way that the body protects the rest of the body. I just it, I, sometimes I get chills to think about how like sophisticated that is, and and we just take that for granted. So. Is silicon the the main material that's used for implants now? Or are they still doing saline or is that totally well, a all implants, whether they're silicone or saline, actually have silicone in them. That's so right. the the saline implants are filled with saline, but the shell is made of silicone. Uh, and the silicone implants, the shell is made of silicone and the inside material is also made of silicone. Mm. So um and there's, you know, there's been a lot of studies um about which one is more likely to cause a reaction. What's interesting is it's not just BII that's the problem, breast implant illness. It's um, there's been a proven, it's a low correlation or like a low incidence, but there's a definitive link between a certain kind of implant and a cancer, breast implant associated anaplastic large cell lymphoma. It's a mouthful for basically just saying that specific type of breast implant can cause um, a lymphoma a type mm. of cancer. So and, and it's like that, another another problem. The ca- causation right yeah. there. Yeah. So, yeah. so we're not like maybe it might. No, no, it's we know hundred percent. Like I was, I remember being at the plastic surgery meeting in 2010 when the first surgeon got up and announced those results. He's like, there is definitively a link here. Wow. This is an extremely rare type of cancer that we're only seeing in patients with implants. Wow. It was just another um, nail, let's say, in the coffin for me for about what I wanted, like whether or not I use implants. And that's not to say, you know, again, there's always multiple sides. I think in certain patients, implants may be the best option if it's right. that they accept the risks and are fully informed. But for me, I was just like, man, there's just more and more evidence against yeah, it. That's, so, a big, that's a big one. So is it, is it a high risk of this lymphoma or is it like a very low percentage? Of it was, um, it, it, it's still extremely rare. Um, at the time, the last time I looked at the evidence and that might not be the most up-to-date information, it was like one in several thousand, which which is considering how many implants are done a year, that's still yeah. pretty high. Um, but it wasn't like uh, the other statistics I was giving you, like 30% of implants. It's, it's it's still considered a very rare type of cancer. Right. And it's more associated with textured silicone implants. And um, what that means is that the outer covering of the implant is specifically made to be rough, which like back to what you're saying about the immune system, it's pretty cool. Is it, it um, well, Cool is one way to look at it. It's obviously not for anybody who's who's right. who's dealing with the implants. Um, it's just that the 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 way the immune system reacts to it is a lot more aggressive because of the way the implant is the physically made. Wow. Yeah. So the immune system is just freaking out just oh. by virtue of the surface of the yeah. implant. You know, when it comes to overall health, the little daily habits can make a huge difference. Take flossing, for example. Seems like such a minor thing, right? But taking good care of your teeth and gums does way more than just prevent cavities and bad breath. Emerging research shows that it can actually support whole body health and may even prevent cognitive decline as you age. That's wild, right? That's why I'm really excited to tell you about this awesome company called Slate and their game-changing three-in-one electric flosser. It's the only product out there that flosses your teeth, massages your gums, and even scrapes your tongue to remove bacteria to promote fresher breath. I've been using the Slate Flosser for about a month now, and I'm hooked. Unlike regular floss picks that you have to jam into your mouth, this electric flosser does all the work for you with 12,000 sonic vibrations per minute, really cleaning out them gums. The innovative gum sweeps give your gums a gentle massage to increase circulation too. 
And let's not forget the built-in tongue scraper to help zap bad breath at the source. So to start one of the easiest and healthiest daily habits with the Slate Electric Flosser, go to slateflosser.com and use the code DRG to get 10% off of your very own flosser. That's 10% off of your easy-to-use Slate Electric Flosser at slateflosser.com slash DRG, S-L-A-T-E-F-L-O-S-S-E-R.com. And the code is DRG. You know, living a long life is great. It is. We all want to live longer. But what's even better is living those years in good health, right? Free of the chronic diseases and the ailments. Unfortunately for many, the gap between lifespan and health span is way too wide. And we spent our last years ill, not enjoying our life to the fullest. And that's why I'm always into research-based products, quality supplements that are coming out to you, the highest, the best of the best, some of the best rigorously tested supplements. And one of my favorite companies across the board is Momentus. And they have two that I use every single day creatine and collagen. These are the two powerhouses at work. I've been opened and I've been working out more four times a week. I'm lifting heavy weights and these are staples. And, I, and not just me, I think everyone should be out working out, building muscle, staples to muscle repair and muscle growth. But what sets Momentus apart from the rest is its clinically researched formulas. For the collagen, it delivers 15 grams of collagen, supporting your body in various ways. And it's not just one type of collagen, it's all the types of collagen, right? A lot of companies just have one type of collagen. You want all the types of your body's absorbing and utilizing this collagen the way you desire the body to use it. But boy, oh boy, the gold standard for working out, if you're not on this, you don't even have to be working out. You can use it for your brain. It's creatine. Momentous creatine is fantastic. There's no fillers, no additive, pure, effective ingredients you can trust. Trust is everything when it comes to supplements. Momentous third-party test. There's no surprises. What you see on the package is what you get. So if you're like me, you want to feel your body with the best of the best, go to livemomentous.com and use the code DRG for 15% off of creatine and collagen and all their top-notch products. That is L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com with the code DRG for your discount. We have breast implant illness and I want to go to some of the symptoms. Yeah. But, but before we do, can it just be that maybe someone has gotten breast implants and it's insidious over the years, they're just like, I don't know, I'm just a little bit more tired every year. Mm. Could it be something that we don't even put our finger on, but some women just don't notice five years later that they're just not the same? Can that be part of breast implant illness? I, I absolutely think it can. And, it's, and because it's um, sort of this constellation of symptoms and some of the symptoms are these little things that kind of creep up over time, it, it can be challenging. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, you, you get out of the car and you bump your knee on the door. You right. you saw what happened, it hurts right away, as opposed to this like slow thing over time where like, I think I'm more tired or I think I've got brain fog or, you know, um, my, my joints hurt a little bit more. So many of those symptoms correlate to so many other things that can happen in life and so many other conditions that it's hard to know for sure. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. So when it comes to breast implant illness, what are some of the major symptoms that we see? So uh, fatigue is a big one. Um, there's joint pain, hair loss, dry eyes, um, often either weight gain or weight loss. Um, and then there's actually a, a a uh, big constellation of psychological symptoms, whether it's anxiety, depression, OCD. Um, so it's it's. I would say those are the most common things that I that I hear about. Um, and then just back to what you were saying about saline versus silicone. Actually, there's some thoughts around mold being in the sil in the saline wow. implants. Yeah, because um, even though they're filled with this water, they're kept at room temperature. And if any amount of bacteria, yeast, mold, fungi, whatever gets in there, it can grow over time. And could that somehow be contributing to those symptoms too? Well, and you've removed a lot of breast implants. Have you ever seen mold or bacteria or some sort of 
growth. Yeah. So when I remove the implants, I, I do a standard swab and I send it for culture. And sometimes it'll grow stuff, sometimes it won't. But I've taken out saline implants before with like chunks of stuff floating in the bag. And it's it's just like, what the... Yes. Whole, like that was inside of somebody. It's yeah. gross. And yeah, it's wow. it's intense. And the capsules sometimes come out. Sometimes they're really soft. Other times they're hard as like a an egg. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. It's 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 pretty next level that these things are living inside of the body. Now, when it comes to breast implant illness, is this happening because the state is just a in a persistent state of inflammation over and over? Do do they have any understanding of yeah. some of the mechanisms behind it? So there's theories and some of the tests around the theories. For a while, the theory was that um, the capsule was contributing to the problem yeah. because you basically have this like furnace of inflammation happening in a localized place in the body and it's just showering off inf inflammatory particles because the body is just trying to contain um, the, the silicone. It's, it's, it's just constantly, it's building this like massive protective wall around it. And that wall is this capsule that's full of inflammatory cells that are just creating these particles. That was the working theory for a while. And I still think that holds a lot of truth. If the silicone gel bleeds out of the capsule, which can happen either from trauma impact or just, just because of the, you know, it can't always hold it. Silicone is like an incredibly slippery material. If you ever see in the operating room, it's like a nightmare. Oh, really? Because sometimes the the implants themselves will rupture, and it's like it's just once it starts leaking, you're you're just in a constant mess of trying to clean Whoa. and wash it out. It's, I mean, I've also done surgery on patients who've had silicone injections in other countries and things like that. So it yeah. it's like on a on a large scale, trying to touch it, it's a mess. But also on a microscopic level, it's just invading everywhere. I see. It's just literally this like this like goo that just gets everywhere. So mm -hmm. the body is just going to keep reacting to it. Um, and so the, work, the working theory is that it's the body's reaction that creates the, uh, the inflammation around it that creates a lot of the symptoms. And it's funny because you mentioned the mental, emotional states that are disrupted. It's not just physical. We see people going, like you said, with that anxiety or just even depression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's wild to think that so much inflammation can even make its way to the brain. Yeah. It's it's a full body state of inflammation. Totally. And for all the viewers and listeners, think about it. If you have breast implants, did any of this already signal a little bit of an al alarm for you yeah. or someone you love or someone you know? So I'm assuming now there's been an increase over the years of explant surgeries, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not all explant surgeries are created equal, correct? Totally. So yeah. viewers and listeners who go, wait a minute, I've been thinking about this. This is the nail in the coffin. I got this awesome doc telling me all this information. What, what do they have to look for right now? That's a, a great question. I think because so much of the explant community is actually being led by patients, there is a lot of information out there about people sharing their own experiences. And I think that's great information. I, I would say the most well-informed person I've ever interacted with has been a patient because they're just out there consuming the information, uh, digesting it, looking for new information. And often it's not always the surgeons who are the most up to date. Um, so when 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 being in this world of like, first of all, my my first first thing I would share is from a place of empathy with a patient is like, I feel you, I hear you. It is incredibly confusing to be a patient with implants and in inquiry of what to do, because um, there's not really a gold standard out there yet. There's the best level of evidence we have of what we think we know needs to happen, but then there's just this total wash 
of other misinformation. So I like to think about it as kind of like bullseyes of what to do in terms of like levels of evidence about how reliable. Mm -hmm. So in the sweet spot is if you have implants um, and you have these symptoms and you have an autoimmune condition, it's very likely that an explant um, could improve your symptoms, but not a guarantee. But then comes it comes kind of what the the unfolding of the the path to look on what you were mentioning. It's like, well, what do I do if I want to do an explant? Um, there is what I believe is the process of supporting the body before, during, and after the explant process, yeah. and that's super important. And that's where things kind of get a little bit confusing um, because I've seen I can break it down from before, during, and after, and kind of go about it that way. Before, there's you know there's there's people out there. Um, in, in, in different industries that have different supplements and support programs and things like that. And some, some of them have evidence behind them and some of them don't. I think um, an often largely not talked about part about the whole explant process is the psychology of, of what it means to go through that journey. Because if you're considering an explant, it means you've reached a point in your body awareness where first of all, physically you feel symptoms, but you're also starting to honor and have awareness for the trauma that you went through to the whatever led to getting those implants in the first place. And this is zero judgment. We've all made decisions at some point in our lives that we have to just like face and, and, and reconcile. But a lot of my friends who have gone through explants and a lot of patients I talk to, I've noticed this sort of three-year timeline from the point that they're like, I, I think I need the implants out and the time it takes to psychologically, mentally prepare for that to, to finally do it. And what what they're really what patients are really going through in that journey is like I'm accepting that the decision I made at that time, however old I was, for whatever reason I did, is no longer serving me. You know, I didn't like the way my body looked, or somebody thought I needed to look this certain way, so I did it for them. Um, many patients of mine and friends who are in the fitness industry, as like fitness models, would often just like a snap decision, go get the implants because they thought it'd help in the competitions. Uh. And it's a snap decision, but you're living with that for the rest of your life or up until you choose to do something about it. So the whole prep work before, I think, is a really large mental aspect. And, and um, finding a surgeon um, and care team that you align with, I think having a therapist is, is, is an amazing um, ally throughout the journey. And there's great therapists out there that do work in this space. Um, one that a few that have written books. One is Amanda Savage Brown. She wrote a book called Busting Free, and it's like she she talks about the whole arc of of um, just just what it means to like have this awareness about your body. So the before part is important, and in honoring that, that it's its own process. You know, you don't decide to get an explant today and do it tomorrow. It's like you got to do the research. You got to mentally prepare for what it what what it's going to look like to look different and yeah. feel different, because um, it is going to be dramatic. There's no way that you're going to get an explant. And, um, you know, it's not to say some people are happy right away afterwards, but th there is a process of almost like mourning and grieving the body and shape that you had and whatever there, and then what happens afterwards. So that's the before. The, the actual explant process itself, um, the big discussion that I see and people ask me about is capsule or no capsule. And what they're referring to is, do I remove just the implant or do I remove the implant with the capsule? And that's its own discussion. Um, where a lot of surgeons have have strong thoughts and feelings about it, I ultimately leave it up to the patient and what their symptoms are saying. There is some thought that the capsule itself is what's contributing to the disease, um, like we talked about before. Mm -hmm. But technically, um, uh, from a surgical perspective, it actually makes the surgery way more complicated. Mm -hmm. And I always like to think about risk and benefit. Is it worth uh, making, um, assuming the added risk of the procedure to remove the capsule? versus just taking the implant. And, and to give you some like 
what I mean by that is the, the, that capsule is gnarly. It's stuck to everything around it. And usually the implant's placed around the muscle. So to, if you think of the anatomy, on, on the top, the implant's stuck to the pec, the pec muscle, and on the bottom, it's stuck to the rib cage. So surgically, to remove the capsule, you're trying to imagine an egg buried underground. You're trying to like very carefully remove the egg oh, intact okay. yeah. and not puncture anything above or below. Wow. So a known complication of, of the removing the capsule is that you can actually puncture the lung or you can damage the muscle. So it is technically a lot more demanding and it takes more time and the incisions are bigger. And we still don't know 100% for sure that it will always alleviate the symptoms. So when patients come to me and say, I for sure want the capsule out under no condition do I want it to remain, I honor that, but I also go through the risks yeah. and benefits. So I just, I just want every patient to be as informed as possible before going that. Now, some people say, I don't really have that many symptoms, but I know I don't want these implants in anymore and I just want the cap and I want the, um, I want the implant out. And I can usually tell when I go in surgically, I can see that the capsule is soft. It looks like kind of like almost like the surrounding tissue. It's not hard. It's not crusty. It's not calcified. And that to me says, even though it's there, it's not like it doesn't seem to be as a, an active source of inflammation in the body. Um, and so this is something I'm I'm always always still an inquiry about with patients. I, I try and let them be a guide in the process, but also keep them informed. Mm. So the big the big discussion about in surgery is do I remove the capsule with the implant or do I leave it? And then afterwards, afterwards I think um, in the recovery is also super important. You know, there's there's so many different healing modalities out there um, that I've heard patients share with me that help. Um, everything from ozone therapy to NAD to lymphatic massage to red light therapy. There's like yeah. a million and one ways to try and optimize your recovery. And they all have different levels of evidence with them. My, my go-to way of thinking about it is as long as it has low risk of hurting you or being extremely expensive and draining your wallet, it's okay yeah. to try. Um, there's proven things that I know for sure that help, which is lymphatic massage really helps uh, restore um, just in general, the lymphatic flow in the body helps with swelling, pain and recovery. Um, and then, you know, in, in, in the recovery, it just depends what, what patients have chosen to do. Did they just remove the implants or did they do a reconstructive procedure like fat grafting to try and restore some of the volume that they had in the breast? Mm. So um, I, I just, I just, I just went for it. I just told you. It's important for us to know yeah. because there's a lot of women going, oh, you know what? It's been two years. I've been thinking about this. You said on average three years. Yeah. You know, it might be the time to remove this, but we don't think about there's there's actually steps before, during, and after that we need to be aware of yep. when making such a big decision. Right. This is it's it's a big decision to get breast implants. Maybe not for fitness professionals, but everyone else, it's really something. So. Uh, to think about those steps and being supported and doing it the right way. Because right. I know the value of the recovery part. Um, I used to work in a breast cancer clinic and mm -hmm. in, in, in hospital and I worked with the surgeons and we had our own protocol, but I saw how much better uh, women become with their post-surgical healing when they increase those modalities, bringing them in. And like you said, they don't need to be super expensive. Mm -hmm. Like the lymphatic massage was huge for women who've had mastectomies. And, yeah. and you know, you can go get that once every other week, you know, mm -hmm. and it'll be really helpful. The red light has been really mm -hmm. something really powerful too. But I, I keep thinking about what you said about capsule and no capsule. Mm -hmm. um, when the capsule is sort of soft, like you mentioned, do we know if that capsule gets broken down by the body over time or is it there for the rest of the life? Um, so what I've, I've, I can only speak to what I've seen surgically, like yeah. going back in and seeing what a capsule mm -hmm. looks like. 
um, it, it's it's living a capsule is living tissue. It's it's yeah. like basically scar tissue. Um, it stays there, but it basically doesn't. What it looks like when it when you go back in, it just looks like it's kind of shriveled up and just become just scar. It's not like this living active tissue so That's much it. anymore. Yeah. Um, because, and I think part of that may have, to, and I don't know for sure, but I think part of that may have to do because it's not actively fighting the silicone anymore. It's just like, it's it's basically just this scar tissue, the same as any other scar yeah, would be. Yeah. Um, so the, the, I think the thought process is that, you know, if people do improve just by removing the implants alone, is that maybe the the reactivity of the silicone isn't as much because the silicone isn't there anymore. It's just, mm-hmm. the, just the capsule remains behind. Yeah. So you mentioned something about fat grafting. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. I don't know how yeah. it works, but I want to know. For sure. And, and 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 is this being used more now? Are women choosing to have fat grafts? You said the liposuction might be. Listen, I never took the surgery course in school, so yeah. let, let, let's let's get enlightened by the guy over here. For sure. Tell us about fat grafting. Um, so fat grafting has really become my number. Just the, the procedure I do the most of, um, and there's there's a really strong mission behind it, which is when I watch this arc of. Um, the breast implant story developing and and how I was involved in it. I said, well, okay, I don't want to do implants anymore. I want I, I want to help women. I want to do explants. Right. And then I realized I was like, well, there's surgeons putting implants in and surgeons taking them out, and we're just on opposite sides of the same equation. That's just going to keep going because there's people are just kind of perpetually keep getting implants and then at some point realize they want them out and then get them removed. So it's not really contributing to like a meaningful solution. And so the the thought process was until there's a, a reliable, safe alternative to breast implants, women will keep getting hurt. And what we need to do is focus on the alternative and make that as good as possible. Mm. So fat grafting has been around for a while. I did not invent fat grafting. It's been around for honestly, probably in some shape or form centuries, but like more popularly in the past 50 years. Yeah. Um, the concept of fat grafting is like any organ tissue transplant anywhere in the body. It's a living tissue. You take it from one part of the body. It's full of stem cells. You put it somewhere else. And eventually those stem cells will cause blood, new blood vessels to grow in. And that tissue will grow there just like you plant a seed in your garden. And with it comes not just structural benefits. So that fat can be used to make volume. It can be used to create a shape. But it can also be used in a regenerative medicine type way where the fat stem cells themselves create a lot of healing properties for the tissue. Mm. So in, in the plastic surgery world, fat grafting became really popular actually in breast cancer as a way to help um, heal irradiated breast tissue mm. and restore volume. So fat would be taken using a liposuction um, procedure uh, and then that fat would be re-injected into an area where a woman had had breast cancer and the breast tissue was irradiated. Mm. So the radiation really makes tissue, makes the skin become like really hard and leathery. And what uh, what people noticed is after injecting the fat, the tissue would soften and become more supple and something in the fat stem cell would allow that tissue to heal. Mm. Fat grafting to the breast has become more and more common actually because of the breast cancer patient population because they were seeking an alternative to help put something around the implant to just, uh, because uh, once you, when you get a mastectomy, the skin becomes really thin. And if you put an implant in that space, um, it becomes really visible. Yeah. And so to try and restore the aesthetics and also the, rejuvenate the skin, that's where fat grafting to the breast became popular. Um, over the years, the technology and science behind fat grafting continues to improve. So back then it was like, well, you're taking this fat out and re-injecting it. We don't know the size of the fat cells, what they should be. We don't know how we should inject them. So it's been studied, honestly, I think every which way. 
um, how you take the fat out, what you do to it, how you reinject it, and what's the best formula to get it back into the body so the highest amount of fat survives. So if I take it a little bit of fat out right now and reinject into another, another part of my body, we know that somewhere between 50 to 80% of those cells will survive. All right, let's face it, with all the toxins we're exposed to nowadays with processed foods, pollutants, and even stress, our poor livers have been working overtime. If you've been feeling sluggish, bloated, or just overall rundown, it may be time to give your hardworking liver some extra love and support. That is where Organifi's Liver Detox comes in. This convenient little capsule contains a powerhouse blend of clinically studied superfoods. This convenient little capsule contains a powerhouse blend of clinically studied superfood ingredients specifically designed to remove excess toxins and improve digestion, promote healthier energy levels, and just overall liver health. Now, one of the key ingredients is artichoke leaf extract, which has been clinically proven to help detoxify the liver and digestive tract. Then you got the all-star liver protector. You heard of it, milk thistle, an herb that has been used for centuries to give your liver a big old hug. That's not all. Organifi's liver detox also contains dandelion root, one of my favorite ones of all time, which is loaded with vitamins and minerals to promote healthy liver function and digestion. And finally, Trophalia, an ancient Ayurvedic formula packed with antioxidants that has been traditionally used as a powerful liver tonic, one of my favorite ones too. So whether you're dealing with sluggish digestion, low energy, or just want to give your body's main detox engine a little extra love, Organifi's Liver Detox has your back. Just take one to three capsules at any point during the day to start supporting your liver's natural detox pathways. All of us need to be supporting our liver. If you want to experience the energy boosting, liver supporting effects of this fantastic formula, head to OrganifiShop.com and use the code DRG for 20% off. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I shop.com slash DRG. And they will act just like the rest of the fat in our body. Um, if I gain weight, those, those cells will get bigger. And if I lose weight, they'll get smaller. Literally just, just like that. But what we don't know so well is what that's a pretty big uh, range, 50 to 80%. So when you're, the, the myth around fat grafting has been like, oh, well, it doesn't survive when you inject it. And that's, that's partially true, but the technology has gotten a lot better, which is you can, there's different ways that you can take the fat out and way you, ways you can process it and re-inject it into the breast to maximize the survival. Um, there's some things we can control and some things we can't. And so what I've, what I've seen in my practice and what I'm trying to solely focus on is using fat as a medium to sculpt and shape the breast for patients who have either had cancer, so as a reconstructive tool, or as an aesthetic procedure um, to increase the size of the breast. Instead of breast implants? Inst instead of breast implants. I am wow. happy to say I haven't touched a breast implant in surgery in probably over six years. I've removed yeah, them, yeah. but I have not put one in. And I'm, I'm, yeah. So, and, so this is actually the new... I wouldn't say trend, but the, what's happening now is that women are getting fat grafts to the breast instead of breast implants. Yeah. yeah. And 50 to 80% are, are staying. Mm -hmm. So they're getting the achievable result of what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Now, can a woman go from an A cup to a D cup with a fat graft? Great question. In one procedure, no. Um, and that's just because of the mechanics of the body. So the tissue can only stretch and accommodate so much. Yeah. So although you could put a massively oversized breast implant in somebody who has a very small frame and they would suddenly go from like what you said, like maybe not an A to D, but like A to C or, or you, could right. put, you could push the limit. You can't do the same with fat grafting in one procedure. However, over time, um, the tissue, like with, with multiple procedures, that, that tissue will continue to expand and and be able to accommodate more fat. Mm -hmm. So I've taken patients through as many as three, four 
um, uh, procedures where I'm able to each time inject more and more fat and actually take somebody from, let's say, like an A or B cup and go as big as a C or a D. Mm. Um, and it's just about having a conversation. And I do it in such a way where I try and make each procedure as minimally invasive as possible um, so so we can we can kind of guide them through the process. It's it's usually though the way to think about it is a one to one ratio. And like on a on the science level is um, if if you have a given volume of the breast, you can usually roughly put double uh, the same amount of fat into the breast. So if the mm-hmm. breast is a hundred cc's, um, you can put roughly you could fit a hundred cc's of fat into the breast. Not all of it's going to survive, right. so you probably right. go up to you know like maybe seventy percent of that. Okay. Yeah. It, it, when you do a fat graft, it, is it are we are you still causing incisions, opening up, and then putting it in there, or is it just injections? It's all just injections. It's all done wow. through literally like a one to three millimeter sized hole. Wow. And I literally sculpt, kind of like a, like a sculptor. Like the the fat is my medium, so I'm gently putting it with a special tool yeah. to sculpt it. So the fat is removed through a really small hole with a liposuction cannula. Um, and there's so many different ways about approaching this. I try and do it in a way where it's uh, minimally invasive. Patients are mostly awake in that setting. Um, and there's a whole way to do it so they don't have to undergo the risks of general anesthesia. So you can be awake, comfortable. Mm. Um, the fat is harvested through these really small uh, entry points that are about a, like the size of a tip of a pen, about a mil- one to three millimeters. The fat gets removed. And then I inject it, like a, like, like I said, like I sculpt it back in through these little uh, dots. And there's usually only two little entry points in the breast. Where is most of the fat being removed from? Usually um, the abdomen area. And that ends up being, you know, some, some patients love this procedure just because it ends up, you know, you're, you're addressing one part of the body while also uh, transferring fat somewhere else. So Wow. And I didn't even know that this was mm-hmm. getting that popular. Yeah, it's, it's I would say um, over the... I mean, it's become the number one procedure that I do, but I, I, I choose to specialize in this, but more and more uh, patients are, are opting for this. It's a more natural anatom- anatomic way to address what's going on. Yeah. Um, people don't have a deficiency of breast implants right. in their body. It's, and the breast is mostly made of fat and breast gland yeah. tissue. So mm-hmm. it's more, I think, anatomically appropriate to, to put use fat as mm-hmm. the, the way to sculpt the breast. Aside from maybe the, the fat not sticking fully as, as we want, are there any other complications from fat grafting? For sure. Any surgical procedure has its risks and, and fat grafting, even though I think it's a lot safer than implants, still has potential risks. Mm. Um, and there's ways to control for the risks to minimize them, but it's important that patients know about them. So um, sometimes, depending on the way the fat's injected, if too much is injected in a certain area, that little, you can imagine like if I take a handful of seeds and I just plop them in the ground, the center ball of seeds is just never going to grow. It's like it's not getting water. It's not getting the soil. It's not getting. So the same thing can happen with fat. If if the fat's not properly injected, a little ball of it can die, and we call it fat necrosis. And sometimes it's doesn't. Nothing happens, and then sometimes it can cause irritation and reaction. Um, the other thing that's it's I I personally never had this happen, but it's a known complication. Whenever you inject fat, you can have something called a fat embolus, which is fat gets into the bloodstream. It's more common for patients who are asleep for their procedure and more common if you inject into the muscle. I don't do either of those things, so that's a way to, to minimize that risk. Um, and so, th- uh, so a fat embolism, when the fat gets into the bloodstream mm-hmm. and gets into the lungs, that's, that's a potential risk. Um, again, su- these things are super rare, yeah. but, but important that patients know about them. I would say the more common thing that happens and just for patients to be aware about is that um, the fat that gets injected can sometimes obscure mammograms in the future mm-hmm. for a few months. 
So anyone who's getting screened for breast cancer should be aware that usually for the six months to a year after getting fat grafting to the breast, they should just let the person know who's doing the, the screening that it may be harder to, to detect any abnormalities because they've had a fat graft. Mm. Um, but the important thing, and I, I show this with my patient all the time, is fat grafting, as far as we know today, does not increase anybody's risk of developing breast cancer. Now, now I have a question, uh, and, and I feel like I'm, I'm trying to tune into the audience listening to this, yeah. and they may be thinking this. Let's say I, I'm, a, I'm a female, I had a fat graft, and I say, oh, I love my new boobs. They look great. Thanks, doc, you know? And then I go on this fitness journey, and I start sprinting every day, and sweating every day, treadmill every day, really getting, will I lose my breast? Great question. So... The fat that gets transferred is just like the fat anywhere else in your body. So if you lose a lot of weight and you lose fat from other parts of your body, you will absolutely get smaller and the breast will get smaller. The good thing though is those fat cells are not gone. It's not like they're gone forever. It's just the shape and size of your body like everywhere else is going to fluctuate with weight. Now there's, there's I always, I always um, tell my patients kind of like the two steps of thinking about this. The first is no matter what, for the first four weeks, um, the breasts are going to look way bigger and they will get smaller over the first four weeks. That's because they're swelling, yeah. the fat's still healing. So it ends up being this like, wow, um, at some point they're like, this is incredible. They look so big or I like the size, but they will definitely get smaller for the first four weeks. So no matter what, and that's where I think a little bit of the myth comes in saying the fat doesn't survive. But in my experience, I'm seeing pretty consistently 70 to 80% fat survival. And so that's a lot bigger than where you're starting from. But then what tends to happen, like this phase two after that is like, well, how does my body change over time? So I've had some patients that use the whole weight fluctuation thing to their advantage. They'll gain weight and their breasts will get bigger and they like that. Right. Um, but some people also will lose weight. And we just, I just make sure they're aware of that beforehand, that if you lose a significant amount of weight, it will go down in size, but it's not permanent. If you gain that weight back, the breast, the breast will, will still yeah, be there. It's literally new breast tissue yeah. in, in a part of your body. Exactly. New Those, fat tissue. New fat tissue. Those fat cells are still there. They just, there. They just shrink or get bigger with this weight. Is, this weight is fascinating to yeah. me because I knew nothing about fat grafting. So, until so like cool to talk about This you. is cool. Yeah. So before we went on air, you talked about something I've never heard. Ceremony and surgery together. And this is what makes you super unique. Aside from you not doing the breast implants like most surgeons and moving into this fat grafting and, you know, talking about pre, during and post, what, 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 what is this vision that you have now with mm. the surgery ceremony? And I know that you really value the emotional connection to the body, the feminine aspect. I want to go into like, where is this going for you now? Um, so, so surgery ceremony is um, a concept I've been working on for the past year or so, and I've been working on this protocol. And it came out of wanting, first of all, identifying that the, the the world of plastic surgery is great at helping people shape and mold their bodies, but it's leaving people with this um, with not enough resources to for the mind to adapt to that change. And we are in this constant world of living in these avatars and having to adapt the way our mind perceives the body. And I think by and large, the world of plastic surgery has not done enough to support the psychological aspect of what patients go through. So some, some surgeons out there do work with, with therapists and psychologists, and I think that's great. But the, the actually honoring the process of how to prepare mentally for surgery and honor the transformation of the mind, body, and spirit, um, I don't think has been done before. And it, it came to me through the experience of working with patients in the awake setting and also having some of my own ceremonial experiences that it was like a, it was like a light bulb went off. It was a real aha moment. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the actual moment where it dawned on me that patients 
who undergo surgery are having a ceremony-like experience, but it's not being called that, happened a, a few years ago when a patient of mine, shortly after she had received her medication, she'd been going through a lot in her life. She had recently um, gone through a divorce and was was trying to uh, manage uh, uh, work, career, kids, and all this stuff. And I could just tell she was holding on to a lot. And as soon as the medications started to take hold, she just softened, but then she continued to soften. And then the floodgates just opened. She was She, she really had a powerful emotional release. Her body was shaking. I hadn't started the procedure yet, nothing. Wow. It was just like... And it, it brought me back to another experience I'd had in ceremony in a different kind of, not medical type setting, but a, a ceremony where I witnessed somebody going through this kind of like convulsion release emotional experience. And I was like, how, how is this any different? You know, this is an altered state of consciousness um, or you could even say elevated state of consciousness that the, the, the mind and body are finally giving this, this patient the permission to just fully release. Yeah. Um, and it, in that moment, it dawned on me. I was like, "Wow! Every time I'm doing surgery, is an is a I I I, I could be honoring this patient's experience to have um, a moment to honor their body and mind and yeah. transformation, whatever they're holding on to. The body holds on to so much, so yeah. much fear, anxiety, trauma. So I really started to see the parallels between surgery and ceremony. And and um, surgery really is a ceremony. Um, you have a patient or a, a, let's say a person that wants to undergo a transformation." Same in both surgery and ceremony. Two is there is some alteration to the consciousness, whether it's through meditation, whether it's through medication, um, whether it's through like an intense guided experience. There's there's some things happening to the consciousness where you're changing your perception of your body. And the third thing is you have to do the journey. So anyone who's ever sat in a kind of ceremonial setting before, you have to do the the you have to do the journey, whether it's the walking, whether it's the staying up all night, whether it's you know sitting with your shaman, your guide, whatever, you, you are undergoing the journey and the same thing with surgery. So those three elements, um, the desire to transform, the alteration of your consciousness and that, that you have to undergo the journey. Those are like the same for both. What's interesting is when I started to think more about surgery, I was like, man, but there's so much similarity between surgery and ceremony that goes deeper. Like we wear these ceremonial garbs. We don't call them that. We call them scrubs. Right. We call them, you know, every OR has the same kind of blue mm -hmm. drapes. We have the ritual, the ritual of a timeout before surgery, which is you read the same kind of script every time and everybody's checking and is making sure the systems. Mm -hmm. Patients fast before their surgery. There's a reason behind that, but you also often will fast in right. a ceremonial type way. Um, you'll avoid certain foods or you'll only eat certain things. You know, so there's there's a lot of these uh, similarities. And then I heard this, um, I heard a phrase. It was from a, um, somebody shared it with me. It was from an army veteran who was talking about systems and protocols. And he said, what is a protocol, but a process? What is a process, but a ritual and a ritual, but a ceremony? Mm -hmm. And man, when I heard that for the first time, I got goosebumps. I was like, literally everything we do could be imbued and fused with this honoring of a ceremony type yeah. awareness, whether it's brushing our teeth or going to surgery. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was, you know, that's, that's my, my story of how it kind of came to be, but the actual protocol itself is three parts. Surgery ceremony starts with a therapy session with a ketamine assisted psychotherapist, somebody who is trained not just in, um, in the therapy, but also using ketamine as a medicine to help guide people through an experience. And so they'll have three sessions with a therapist. The first is just get to know you. What are your intentions for the surgery? What are your fears, traumas, anxieties? Because everybody has them. The second session they have with the therapist is actually a ketamine session. So it's a way 
to um, use use that elevated state of consciousness to um, to really go a little bit deeper and prepare the mind and body connection. Yeah. And then the third is the integration. So that's uh, that's just the, the that's still just the first part. So three sessions with a therapist. That therapist and uh, patient relationship, they get really clear on the intention and get a lot of information that is helpful for me as a surgeon to honor why they're doing the surgery. Um, what are the fears, traumas, anxiety, things that I need to be sensitive and aware about, mm-hmm. and things that we might want to work through in the, in the surgery process. So step two is the surgery. And I do it as intentionally as possible. So we talk about um, the intention for the procedure. We pick a certain playlist. Um, I'm working right now with a music producer to actually develop like a really guided journey. Um, um, And then it's as much about creating a ceremony intentional space as possible. So um, eye mask, I use some special vibrating tools to kind of really drop into the space. And I use ketamine as the main anesthetic for the procedure. You do? Okay, wow. So patients are... Basically, I call it like conscious sedation. They're not fully asleep. I wouldn't say they're fully awake either, but they're, it's no general anesthesia. None of the heavy meds to just knock sure, you out. Sure. Um, and that's all, I have a whole other sort of thought process around that because when you when you go to sleep for surgery, it's super traumatic. Your consciousness is literally being unplugged. All this stuff happens to your body, and then your consciousness gets plugged back in. And even though you know what's happened, your body is still trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And the body keeps score. You've been. Um, somebody shared with me that in the Chinese medicine world, they view surgery as going into a knife fight that you're going to lose. Wow. Yeah. And for sure, general anesthesia is that. There's no question. Wow. Um, the idea behind doing this procedure awake and with the medication like ketamine is that you're allowed to be a conscious participant in the process, but a little bit dissociated. And also you get all the psychological benefits that we're now learning about ketamine. Right. So ketamine has been known as, a, as an anesthetic for, for years for its, 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 its properties to, um, to help with pain, but it also doesn't really mess with the heart and breathing so much so that you can remain awake, but somewhat pain-free. But the psychological benefits are amazing. It, it helps with neuroplasticity. Um, it's been shown to be an acute treatment for depression and anxiety. Yeah. So it's like, I, I think it's really kind of a, um, a wonder uh, drug in this setting. Of course, there's with any drug or medication, there needs yeah. to be reverence and there's yeah. downsides. But as far as fitting this kind of ceremonial type setting, it's really good because at a certain dose, it actually becomes somewhat more psychedelic or hallucinogenic. And if you're careful with your dosing, you can create an altered state that alleviates pain, but allows you to be guided through an experience. Mm. And so in that's uh, before I start the surgery, I, I bring in the intention that patients want and we get to sit and meditate on that. And I just get to witness this beautiful return to self. I had one patient, her intention was love and self-love. And I just watched her. I, it didn't take much prompts, you know, just, just the right playlist and to, just repeating her intention as a mantra back to her. And she, it was beautiful. It was like watching her blossom. And she was just like, I finally feel self-love. I feel like I'm back in my body. Wow. And she had gone through an explant. She went through the explant, that whole journey. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a lot of trauma and, and, and healing that has to happen there. Huge, yeah. huge, huge. Yeah, and so the last part of surgery is ceremony. So step one is working with the therapist, step two is the surgery, and step three is bringing it all back to the body with somatic body work and working with a lymphatic therapist For who sure. really grounds the experience. I love that. Yeah, and we're all, we all work and coordinate together as a team to honor, the to make it unique and customized to the patient. So whatever their intention is, we kind of honor it each way. And I like mm-hmm. to use the same playlist the whole way through each experience. Mm. So for the first therapy sessions, there's a certain music that acts as a primer. Music is such a powerful vibrational force yeah. to, to bring people in. Yeah. I use it again during the surgery and then again during the body work. Whoa. And so it creates this sort of like really transformative 
really kind of like three-week journey. And what's, what's really interesting about the ketamine from a research perspective is that three sessions of ketamine over three weeks have been shown to create lasting neuroplastic effects to treat depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So what I've been seeing in my patients is like this really lasting effect of not only um, is my body transformed, but I'm, I'm much more ready to meet my new body where it's at with a lot more love, compassion, gratitude. Man, I'm telling you right now, you might be the most holistic surgeon this side of the Mississippi, United States, world, man. Thank, this is Thank you for, 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 for saying that. Saying yeah, that. For yeah, sure, for, man, yeah. but, but it's true. It's like you, you're doing it the way that you have the art and the science. This is what we lost. We lost that art. But when you understand people as holistic beings, right? We're not just pieces of meat that you cut open and throw something in there and then sew it up and, you know, I've seen that. Um, but really that intention of the mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, and, and, and nurturing that through the whole process is that's what creates long lasting healing. And I wish that more conventionally trained or surgeons had that perspective. This is what we need. And, and I thank you for that, man. Thank really, you. like from, from one holistic doc to another, like this is, this is yeah. what we need. And it, it resonates so much with the somatic piece. That's what I love more than anything. So we are shaking up the world and this is the way we do it. Thank you for, for seeing me and also the, the platform that you create. Man, when I, when I saw any of your podcast and listened to it, I was like, God damn, this, this is exactly, exactly the information yeah. and way that um, I, I hope things get out there. And it's, it's, I hope to just be, you know, I've, I've been in inquiry for a long time in the past five years. Like, how do I rectify all these different right. parts of myself? How do I bring it all together to, right. to do something meaningful that I can stand up for and be aligned with in every day? And I'm, I, feel, I feel very blessed and grateful to be in, in service in that way. And, and thank you for seeing that. In service. That's yeah. true from like the spirit. And, uh, and that's what we need. So how do people find you? Um, in, Instagram is probably the best way, uh, at drjohn.k, so D-R-J-O-N.k. Mm -hmm. I have a website for my practice. The name of my practice is Aura Aesthetica. It's a, um, Aura as in A-U-R-A. Aesthetica is A-E-S-T-H-I-T-I-C-A.com. Mm -hmm. But Instagram is probably the best place. And you're doing the fat graphs. Mm -hmm. You're doing the whole ceremonial setting. Mm -hmm. uh, explants still? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, just no breast implants, everyone right. out no there. No breast so implants. You can't be going to this guy for the breast <laughs> implants. You gotta go. I, I will refer to you my colleagues yeah. happily if 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 you're really passionate about it, and yeah. also try and give you as much information as I can. So, okay, yeah. so go visit the website. Go visit the Instagram. If you're thinking about breast implants, if you have breast implants, if you think you have breast implant illness, all of the stuff. This is the place where you get your resources. Thank you for coming on the show, man. This was the, like, I oftentimes learn but this one i learned a lot this is, you're in another world and yeah. like this you've really you know blew blew my mind on a lot of stuff and i know that you're helping a lot of people out there so i thank you man and we got to have you back maybe next year sometime get that. the updates the ceremonial that. stuff yeah maybe do a show on just ketamine yeah you know, like i know sure. you got a big yeah. smiley face because you know yeah. you're passionate about it yeah thank you so much my man yeah thank you for having me really appreciate you